Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Patrick Tian, LICSW, Childhood Trauma Specialist. And today I'm beyond thrilled to have a really good discussion with my good friend, Dr. Ingrid Clayton. We actually really are friends. We met on Instagram and we've kind of been talking for a year about the same kind of work that we do. We talk a lot about our trauma, actually. And specifically today, we're going to be talking about her beautiful book, Believing Me, Healing from Narcissistic Abuse and Complex Trauma. When I read the book, I I couldn't put it down because there were just so many parallels between my own life, our own trauma, and we discussed that as friends. And what we're going to get into today is something that I call the untouchable mother. This is the mother who denies that we went through anything. You can't hold them accountable for anything that they did, more specifically about who they brought into our lives, which is a lot about what Ingrid's book is about. So without further ado, here's my podcast with my good friend, Dr. Ingrid Clayton. Hello, how are you? I'm well, I'm happy to see you. How are you? I'm good. We last talked like a couple weeks ago in prep for this. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to hear your lens on some aspects of my story because I just think your perspective feels so unique and important and accessible. And because it's so accessible, I think I experienced what a lot of people do that it helps me reflect on things I didn't even know about my own experience. So no pressure, but (laughs) (laughs) I'll do my best. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but I'm looking forward to talking about this slice of, of my experience with you. Certainly do my best. And I, I, I know I keep telling you, but the book really touched me. The book really moved me. And it's just what I really love about that book is I can sort of feel the emotions kind of come up. It's just you really voiced the unnameable things that so many of us go through mm. about just the where a lot of the trauma is just so much around the the abuse of perception. Like, is this happening? Yes. Do you know what I mean? Because like none of the adults are like, yes, this is happening right. and you have the right to those feelings around it. Yes. So I really just like I, I really can't say it enough how much you really kind of nailed the whole process uh, or that experience with like the untouchable mom. Thank you. The so untouchable much. mother. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well sure. I think in part because I was writing it from a place where I didn't even have the language. So it was really my search to find the language to crystallize these things so that I could finally understand it. And I'm so grateful that that is helping people to see their own their own experiences and hopefully begin to heal. Right. And I forget that. Do you mean to say like, you know, you're going, th- the writing is your process. Yes. It's not like you 100%. figured it out in therapy a while ago yeah. and you're kind of doing it in real time. No. Yeah. The book is not a reflection on a separate healing process. The The writing was the healing for me, 100%. Wow. And because I am a therapist, once I had years worth, it was years worth of essays and things that were hanging together and I didn't know why searching, mm-hmm. trying to sort through it. One day, years in, I could finally look back at what I had written with enough perspective to go, this is complex trauma. But I couldn't see it before then. Isn't that wild? It's so wild yeah. to me. I have all these trainings. My whole practice is basically complex trauma, but my story wasn't that bad, Patrick. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that common thing, which is what you're talking about, that gaslighting mm-hmm. experience of like, you know, other people had it so much worse. This is really normal. It's no big deal. I lived in that space 
almost my whole life, right? Like, right. Knowing, but not really knowing, you know, having that split live in me. And that was largely what I was writing about too, is like, why do I keep dating the same person with a different face? Like, why can't I get a healthy relationship to save my life? Like what's, I couldn't figure it out. I didn't understand that it was related to my experience of developmental trauma. Unprocessed, just living in me like it was yesterday. Right. It's fascinating how people just wake up from it. You know, they might see an Instagram post, see a video or whatever. Or in my case, it was came from an experience a couple years, maybe how long? Maybe about eight to 10 months before I got into therapy, like my mother's behavior had hit an all time high. It had hit like a, it, it, she couldn't really kind of get any lower with her children. And that was like a partial wake up. That was really kind of an event. And those events are horrific, but they're also like a gift. Yeah. Meaning the client who, or the, you know, the, the person who wakes up because how their dad was at their wedding. Right. And that behavior somehow is just like, oh my God, he's been like this his whole life. Why couldn't I see it before? Then there's the shame of not seeing it before. Like what was wrong with me, you know? It's so true. And we just have to honor that, you know, we were just, hope was getting us through so much abuse and trauma and mess. Yes, toxic hope, I call it. And I would even say, it's not like I didn't see it. It's not like I woke up to repressed memories. I just thought I had enough distance from it, both in years and geographically. And I really Mm -hmm. believe that I had done enough work on myself that it shouldn't bother me anymore or that it didn't, right? It's sort of like, Listen, I've been in therapy my whole life. You know, you and I have talked. I've been clean and sober and 87 12 step programs. Like, I've been on the retreats. I've, (laughs) you know, I've done, I was doing all the things. And thinking though that that stuff was working on unprocessed trauma, and it was not. It just made me really gifted at crafting a a three minute, you know, share and, um, so true. Right. Yeah. Like I had a head full of right. knowledge that never really touched into the depth of the feeling. And I think there was something for me in the writing process. There was a tremendous amounts of shame, but maybe less shame because it was just me at my computer, largely at like three in the morning where I'm just like, mm-hmm. you know, slogging through it that I could finally right. come into my body enough um, that mm-hmm. I really felt and processed this stuff in a different way for the first time. Wow. Two things while I was listening to you is I tell clients that at some point our trauma bites us in the ass. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear that you you're it is very true when my mother had kind of hit a bottom and become she was at her most abusive with us is a big part of me knew what it was. Do you know what I mean? A big cuz yeah. I we we recoiled. We left. We it was like a final kind of rupture. Right. In how she was. So we knew something was kind of bad. But we didn't know to call it trauma or abuse or something like that. And as a fellow 12 step, you know, as a fellow member of AA, sober person myself, when I used to go to meetings and someone to say like, yeah, I got my typical dysfunctional family. That's where, you know, it started. But I was the problem or something like that. I always kind of go like, are you sure? Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not sort of saying to blame the family totally on addiction, but I'm just kind of saying when you hear those people share and they just kind of, it's not like they're minimizing, they're just using that speak 
to say, you know, typical, you know, crazy, wacky family or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And then maybe years later, they, you know, I'm not saying this is just for people who go to AA, but again, years later, they realize, oh, I can't do intimacy. As, right. as sober and recovered that I am, yeah. I don't know really how to connect with anybody aside from the rhetoric of this stuff yes. or something like I that. I think so many paradigms, like maybe inadvertently kind of support that toxic positivity, spiritual bypass, like, you know, sure. minimize, get over it. And I, right. I, I gobbled it up, right? Oh, I just right. have to look at my side of the street thinking that's going to fix the whole thing, right? And maybe I yeah. don't have a part in what happened to me, but I have a part in how I carry it around as though it's some conscious decision that I could sort of consciously decide not to carry. Meanwhile, it's living and breathing in every single cell in my life. It's in the driver's seat, not me, this one who has opinions about what she should and shouldn't be able to let go of. I mean, so right. I think so many places and spaces and therapists too, right? They want to feel like they're doing a good job. Clients want to feel like they're good clients. And so they're like, I feel so much better now. Thank you for giving me those affirmations. You know, it's like, mm, no, right? <laughs> no, it, do it didn't work. Right. I tried everything else, essentially, like, right. This was the last house on the block for me was to finally be <laughs> able to slow down and just feel it, mm -hmm. feel the depth right. of it, feel the depth of it. And to the point of this conversation, feel the depth of the impact from my mom, not the man she married that was so easy to see as, you know, he was the big bad wolf. Like from day one, it was obvious mm -hmm. to me that he was a sick person, right? But my mom, in contrast, looked sort of healthy. She looked sort of like, sure. I'm at the mercy of him too, which sort of made me feel this connection like, you know, and that notion of hope about like, well, she must see it like I see it, right? I endowed her with this ability to see things the way that I saw it. And if that was the case, well, she's going to come out of this spell any minute, right? Like, mm -hmm. I literally believed that on some level my whole life. And so I couldn't see her impact because I was waiting for her to see it first. And I this yep. can't be understated because... I feel like it's sometimes easy to talk about this stuff. I literally didn't feel like there was any other way. It's not like I was like, well, I'm not going to go feel my feelings because I'm waiting for my mom. It's like I literally believed on, on a deep, deep level. No, they have to set me free from this. They have to agree. Right. They have to. It's why the book is called Believing Me, because that thing captured me whole, whole. It was like revelatory to be like, well, to be where I am now. I never, I never saw this as a possibility to be like, they can agree, disagree. Like it, it truly, well, it still feels terrible, but it has no bearing on my capacity to heal. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I want to respond to a couple of things you said where really well said that part about you know, and speaking to like what we wanted to get into today with 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 the untouchable mother is she brings a perpetrator into your life. Yeah. Post a divorce, yeah. which is essentially where the book kind of takes off from. You know what I mean? Like it's really where things really start to get bad in this little girl's life that so many of us can relate to. And, you know, there's a piece too, especially for me, is that, you know, 
my mother did the same thing about bringing abusive men into her life. But as her son, I was only focused on her well-being. Yes. Thinking she's just kind of caught up in it too, or she yes. doesn't really have any power or choice in it. And I think that that's really like a magical spell that will run its course until we kind of wake up. Yes. And it's also, there is this other piece too that, you know, in our culture, in the typical codependent paradigm mm -hmm. of a perpetrator and a codependent, mm -hmm. and in that paradigm where we put the woman in that codependent position, mm -hmm. there is just that, I don't want to, we can hold any kind of parent accountable, but in society, there just are some things that women are, are vulnerable to the abuse of men. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. but that's something to not also get sidetracked on because it's what I just sort of said is where I was feeling so much for my mother and her abuse as a victim yeah, and yeah. as a woman, it was impossible for me to look at the choices that she made or her yeah. energy around kind of keeping the gaslighting going. You know, when, when you mentioned what is yes. my part yes. is like, what are these parts? What is their part is of their, the parent? Yeah. And I'm not trying to also say that I've had many clients that have uh, a mom who is the aggressor, the the perpetrator and the unprotective father who is in a very similar way. So it doesn't have to be so gender specific. Right. We just both happen to have moms who yeah. are untouchable. <laughs> yeah, 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 100%. Both of our responses, like that's developmentally appropriate, regardless of gender. Again, it's developmentally right. appropriate to be a child. We cannot see our caregivers as wholly deficient. We need them to survive. So absolutely, a child will see themselves as bad before they see their caregiver as bad, right? It, we're hardwired to do this. And I just think it's, again, just to take the notion of sort of like choice and, and um, intellect out of it. It's like our bodies did exactly what a body is designed to do in that situation and sort of look at mom and go, right. Um, no, you must be, you must be in there. You must be okay Yeah. because I need you. Yeah. And just like it's our mother, we care about them. They're our whole that's world. Right. And that's absolutely. Right. That's exactly what I say to clients. It was true from my own experience where developmentally, we need to take care of them for our own survival too. As an yes. addition to just that we love them. We want what's best for them, you know, because, yes. you know, yes. but coming back to the book, like sort of just for the, for the listener who's not familiar with it. There's a divorce. Yeah. She gets together with a perpetrator who was in your life for how many years? Um, until the day he died shortly before I started writing the book seven years ago. So he's in your life for like two or three decades? Yeah. If we were going to do like almost like a quick genogram, there are siblings involved. Mm -hmm. There's no really help from the outside family. And there's a lot of you trying to get mom to get it. He was doing things behind the scenes that were horrific. Yes. So there's two sort of like main storylines that I was experiencing. One was the alcoholic family system. So both right. my mom and stepdad kind of living at the bar and everything that goes along with that. And I would say mm -hmm. my biological brother and stepbrother who lived in the house with me, we were all in agreement that like that was not okay. Right. We heard oh, okay. the car come down the driveway and... You just immediately, you just put down the TV remote and split, right? You run to your rooms, you run to your rooms to see if mm. it's going to feel safe to come out. So yeah. there was that sort of backdrop to what was also happening to me specifically because I was the girl in the house is that my stepdad started grooming me to be his girlfriend, which I, through the writing of the book, discovered 
uh, was not a new pattern for him. This was something that had happened several times previously. So that was the piece where I was like, I'm the only one experiencing this. So is it happening? Are those his intentions? Is this really going on? Why I resonated with the book so much, it was so similar. There's the alcoholic family. There's also so much neglect going on. Do you know what I mean? Because it's like they're they're together as a couple spending most of their time in a bar. Yeah. Yeah. And kids in the 90s and whatever. You know what I mean? It's just like the typical kind of firestorm mess that kind of happens. But just a lot of sad disconnection, you know, is what I remember as well. Yes. But also, like you mentioned, how did you find out can you remind me again, how did you find out that there were other victims in, was it a prior marriage that he had? What was the? Yes. Well, I had always heard stories about his past, but you know, they were his retelling of stories. And so they were dressed right. up in mm-hmm. these fairy tale sort of scenarios. But mm-hmm. I did know that his second wife, so my mom was wife number three, I knew that his second wife was very young when they got married. But again, it was sort of like, it was young love, you know, that kind of a thing. But when I was writing the book, and I was willing to go to any length to validate what happened to me, I called social Mm -hmm. services who went to records in some warehouse, like towns over in the Colorado mountains to see if they could find my files. I mean, I was relentless, just like, what did people see? How were they talking about it? What was going on? So I called anyone who would pick up the phone and hear from me, including Mm -hmm. my stepdad's second wife. And in these conversations, I think what happened is my stepbrother told her I was calling and maybe a little why I was calling. So when she answered the phone, hi, how are you? She said, Ingrid, he did the same thing to me. And I was like, what are you even talking about? I was a victim of his too, she said. And then she rolls out this story that the specifics were so different. And yet some of them were the exact same. But the whole thing was like putting tracing paper over my own experience. Only she ended up marrying him. Mm. She ended up having a child with him, right? It was devastating Mm. what happened. Um, Now I remember. Yes. So, yeah, I got all this clarity in my 40s (laughs) about what really happened to me as a teenager. Mm. And and you just look at that gap in between. And again, it wasn't for a lack of trying. I I did organize an intervention with social services. I kind of called in all the troops like something is wrong. We need to talk about this. And how old were you when you did that? 16. I was 16 and I was desperate, you know? Yeah. And I think that that is what really struck me in the book is, and was also very similar to my experience with my sibling is we found information on the new perpetrator that my mom brought in as well. You know what I mean? Like there were phone calls to an ex-wife and confirmed all that. I'm just kind of recalling now, like there was just so much in your book that was so heartbreaking and powerful. But speaking to that is I think for the listener who has grown up in a similar way in about the ways that reality is having an existential crisis because you're 16 years old, you're going for this Hail Mary of social services coming in and doing something and you've got the evidence. And maybe we should kind of start there. Could you, because this is what I remember about that scene is that you do this whole 
self-driven intervention, you're terrified. Yeah. And there's a school meeting that they bring in your mom. Yeah. And I think when I was reading the book, and that's when I go like, oh my God, she's got an untouchable mother too. Yes. Well, it was so fascinating because it was with the help of a school counselor. I had finally divulged enough of what was happening to me that my school counselor said, Ingrid, this is reportable. I have to call in social services. But she said, I want to give you an opportunity to sort of drive that bus and have some agency in it. Which Hmm. I look back and I go, well, that's interesting. I don't know. It's an interesting choice, but I appreciated it as a 16-year-old that I wasn't feeling blindsided, right? Because part of growing up in that household was growing up in terror. And if I would have felt like someone else is just kind of running in, I think, I don't know. I I mean, even just now, my body responds like, "Don't, don't you dare. But when I felt like, okay, you agree, school counselor, that this is wrong. You think we should call social services. Well, I certainly think it's wrong. Okay, let's go. And then she said, why don't we bring in just your mom first? And it felt to me like she was trying to give my mom an opportunity to be a mom. She was trying to give her an opportunity to show up and maybe make some choices without her partner being right there. And I thought, oh, yes, yes, right? That part of me that had all this hope that my mom's going to come in any minute now and kind of like shake the fog off was like, let's do that. And so I called her. She worked with her husband. They owned a business together. So I'm like on the, the phone. The, per- the husband is the perpetrator. Yes. And yep. so I'm on the phone at school, like knowing that she's likely standing right next to him in the middle of a work day. And I'm like, can you please come to the school right now? Uh, please don't please don't say anything to him about it. I just need you to come by yourself. I'm like, what's going on? You know, why is everything? Everything's fine. I just need you to come. Please don't say anything. Just come by yourself. And she said, okay. And she came. And there was this school counselor, two social workers, myself, all in this tiny little closet, like, room. And I tell her everything that had happened. You know, the the main thing being that he had recently taken me to Las Vegas while she was out of town with her dying father. And he was parading me around like a girlfriend. He lied to everyone about it. It was, it was horrific. It it was Mm -hmm. so wrong. And it seemed more obviously wrong than so many other things that he had done. Mm -hmm. And I, I say everything just like it was like, it had been waiting to fall out of me and I just spell it all out. And she says, can't look at me (laughs) first of all. And just says through these pursed lips, I need Randy to be here right now. Wouldn't say anything else. Mm -hmm. Needed to call her husband to come to the school and be a part of this conversation. And I just knew in that moment, like, this was not going to be helpful. This was going to make it worse. And that's exactly Mm. what happened. This made it so much worse. It's not just what happened to you. It still makes me emotional. It's the way that people respond to what happened to you. That was almost worse because as a child, I was more vulnerable asking for help than I've ever been. And what I was told is you're a liar. You made it all up. You're selfish. You're the problem. And so what I learned is don't advocate for yourself. Don't speak up. I learned, let it go, move on, put on the blinders. It's safer that way. Right. 
Right. So I had what I think was more of a healthy fight response. It was like, this is wrong. We got to talk about this. I had a voice and it was snuffed out. And the only way for me to survive then was to mirror what I saw my mom doing every day, which was to fawn, which is to say, mm-hmm. I don't get to be all of me. I have mm-hmm. to appease and please and go along and stuff it and drink and <laughs> turn to all these other ways to cope because that's all I had. Right. And I want to honor that the 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 pain and the emotions still come up when we're talking about it when we're when we're really kind of telling our truth yeah that's what kind of happens but just for the listener for to just take in a moment where i know that the listener including myself has been there at a place where fighting back doesn't work yeah and i think especially around the teenage years i think that that's where we start to slip into some deeper depressions it's the place where I started to act out more with alcohol and drugs. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because in a way, what's horrendous about that moment with your mother, there was there was such an opportunity for safety and protection. Mm. And also as a parent, we want to be teaching our kids that they have some power. Yeah. That they have some sort of safety. Yeah. And you're with essentially predator, pedophile, stepdad. Yeah. Who's long game grooming you. Yeah. And she goes to a place of, it's a little bit like in my mind, she's sort of saying, well, now you're in trouble and you're not going to get me in trouble. That's right. And I don't want to be in trouble. And that is exactly, I mean, I love the way I, I want him to be that. here. You're in trouble and I'm not going to let you get me in trouble. God, that's good. That's it. That just, that's it. We have very similar mothers. In those moments where I would bring things up to her, she kind of goes, oh no. Yeah. And then she goes, it wasn't me. I wasn't there. It didn't happen. Mm. You know, or at best, at worst, it was like through clenched teeth. Yeah. Like, how, how dare you bring this up to me right now? You know, like, yeah. mm-hmm. it just kind of, it kind of breaks a kid, to be honest. And we have to find, hopefully, a safe place later to reclaim some power and have our kind of emotional day in court with it. Because, yeah, wow. Which is what the writing was, which is also yeah. why when I think, I've told this to you in, in previous phone calls that, there's this part of me that's so jealous of your story because I feel like you ended up with a really gifted therapist who understood these things, understood trauma long before, you know, anybody else really. And so I was trying to have my reckoning. I just felt like I was on a hamster wheel, like working right. so hard and going nowhere, which again perpetuated the shame of like, what is wrong? Like, there's no one who's worked harder. I went and got three degrees in psychology, built my life around Mm -hmm. understanding, you know, and still at my core was just full of toxic shame. Couldn't understand uh, why I couldn't be more free. And yeah, And, and now I know why, but it doesn't take away the fact that, man, that's decades lost. It's decades yeah. lost. And it's another reason why I wrote the book, but also really felt passionate about sharing it because yeah. I don't want people to live there for decades if they don't have to. 
to put a plug in that I would, I'm sure you, many people do, they want to see the change in our profession. We're both licensed clinicians. Yes. Oh my gosh. And we're both, you know, I love what I do, but I'm also, I don't want to therapist bash because I know that there's a lot of good therapists out there too, but there's also a lot of people that in those years, I can see the therapist that you had. They might've been good people. They might've gotten you out of a spot, but they might've kind of said, um, well, time will heal all those wounds. Or they might've said, you know, but she's your mom. If you, if you had a really kind of a bad one, or it might've just been cerebral and talk about like, you know, well, I could see why your attachment wound is this. What are you going to do? Right. All of the above, not maybe as explicitly, but all of the above, right? Like, Mm -hmm. um, right. We can't change the past, all that kind of stuff. It's like, okay, trauma means the past is living in me now. Yeah. Don't gaslight me into think like, oh, oh, right. That happened so long ago. Right. Or at least ask yourself, am I being honest about my understanding of trauma? Am I being honest about my understanding of a toxic family system? Yeah. Is it is it my codependency, the why I'm saying yeah. your mom probably had wounds too? Right. Or is that coming from a model of therapy place that's going to get somebody from A to B? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So can I ask about, keep coming back to this word, untouchable. Yeah. Like not speaking to what I just said, I, we don't have to like, you know, psychoanalyze your mom and know what, but in in a way, like, what is it about your mom that she can compartmentalize all that stuff and get mad that you're going to get into trouble? What do you know? What do you kind of see that's going on there? Because I think for the listener, in some ways, it's not that important to explain the parental behavior, but it does kind of I'm more talking about let's define the emotional immaturity, not so much about what happened to them, I guess. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I I don't even know the underpinnings of my mom's specific traumatic events Mm -hmm. or or what happened to her. But I know what I witnessed and experienced. And there's one story that I wrote in the book where I'd gone to visit. I think I was in my 20s and I'm standing in the kitchen and I'm talking to her, just telling some kind of innocuous story. I'm like, Mom. Mom, she's like feet away from me and she's so dissociated. She is not there. I didn't have the language of dissociation then, but that's what it was. And I literally saw her come back into her body and turn to me. This remains maybe the only really honest moment that we've had ever. And she said, Ingrid, my life is so painful. I just have to disappear sometimes. And I was like, mm-hmm. wow, okay, so she does know, <laughs> she does know that she leaves, yeah. she does know, um, right. and so I think there was a lot of dissociation, I think, you know, that classic codependency fawning, like, when I think about um, when you were saying your mom would sort of say through gritted teeth, like, how did, you know, don't get me in trouble, essentially, what I saw is the minute that my mom married this man, his name is Randy. I, I now also know that he he really is a classic narcissist, uh, narcissistic personality disorder. Mm-hmm. He came into the picture and my mom just fell in line. It was like she dis- she did disappear before my very eyes. She wasn't my mother anymore. He was the parental figure. She didn't have mm. a voice anymore. It was his right. voice. It was his voice, even when it was coming through her body, like she... She would only say things that I know she knew that he had said before because that was the only safe thing to say. So it's like 
Yeah. It's just like I did not have a mom. I had someone who was on puppet strings, who was, you know, there in body some of the time, but mm -hmm. no one was home. Right. Or she was drunk, like really intoxicated yeah. a lot of the time, right? All these different ways of sort of checking out. We'll just get absorbed into somebody else's life because we don't have a sense of self. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, like I've even done that. For the listener is there's many childhood trauma survivors who had a mother who couldn't live without a man in her life. Yep. My mom never did. She never lived alone a day in her life. Right. She right. went from living with her parents to marrying my dad and living with him to leaving that marriage and yep. seamlessly moving in to marriage number two. She didn't live alone a day in her life until he died. Wow. Wow. And didn't and know just, she could do it. Like, was worried. Like, yep. am I going to be able to sort of pay all the bills? I'm like, yes, you are. Because you were living with a tyrant who was, like, financially abusing you. Like, you're going to have some, yeah. some choice in how, where your money goes. And, like, it's going to be amazing. Just you wait. <laughs> I was thinking the other day about, like, for an abusive parent or really negligent parent or toxic parent, like this is going to sound off, but what are the ingredients that gives themselves license to do what they do? Yeah. In my mom's ingredients is sort of like addiction, dissociation. And my mom has this thing about just like, I can't handle that. I just need to, I just need to focus on this. I can't handle that. Yes. Like, you know, like there's just such a. Yes. My mom just like said a, those same words when I approached her about mm -hmm. writing this book and said, hey, I, I really need to talk about this stuff. She's like, okay, I understand, but I just right. can't handle that right now. And I was like, okay, right. well, it's been, you know, her husband of 30 plus years just died. Let me give her some time. There's never a good time. There's never enough bandwidth. There's, you know. Yep. My mother is the most nasty or reactive when she's either hungover or when you bring her a chunk of reality that you have to bring up. Mm. And that reality is going to, she's going to have a part to play in that reality. So I think that's just kind of a quality about like in a way about, I'm just kind of, maybe we'll never really quite define it. And maybe it's really not that important, but to the listener is, I think what, why I wanted to have you on the podcast is we both reached a point of giving up on and letting going of trying to still touch somebody who's untouchable. Yeah. And I find that that's a magical moment. The most painful moment is in my life is giving up on having a connection with my mother. Hands down, the most painful moment. Me too. I think we need to spend some time here because it's so big. It's the most right. painful. Broke me. Moment in both of our lives, digesting the truth of that and walking away and mm -hmm. uh, grieving yeah. what it never was, what you wanted it to be, all of it. That's where things started to get better. Yeah. That's when I started to recover is giving up on that dream, whatever it was. As a little boy trying to cure my mother's grief, trying to cure her depression, try to fix her relationships with men. And giving up on that, that's the beginning for me of having a sense of self. Healing from trauma, like it's more painful than the trauma itself. And and I think what we're talking about speaks to that, that that, that awareness and digestion and processing mm -hmm. of what actually happened was more painful than whatever happened in my childhood. It was like 
so yeah. intense, but it was the thing that unhooked me. It was. Right. I think I said in a group one time when I was when I was running groups, I, I think I said, you know, I was they were asking what is codependency, trying to really explain codependency. Yeah. And I had heard something it's like a magic code. Like if you had this magical complex key, like a like <laughs> remember yeah. the stupid keys that you would get on a CD ROM to you know, like some stupid you know what I mean? If we just figure out the magic key yeah. that can just get through to our mom and let them know or connect with them on some way that we we believe that there is that key and i think recovery yeah is when we kind of say oh there's no, no key would do this yeah. it's not that the key that the is broken it's the receiver is broken that's just so right i'm just feeling the truth of it in my body and and how hard that really is right, right. To, to acknowledge that and yeah i spoke to that process in my writing that when it was really coming down and hitting me because you know, many years after I said, like I said, I started writing and it was becoming clearer and clearer. And I was talking to anyone who would listen. The one person I hadn't talked to was my mom. And I thought, okay, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to face it. And she wasn't ready. She wasn't ready. But it was like saying I'm not ready. I interpreted to mean like, well, she's not ready now, Patrick, but she's going to be ready any day now. It was like enough to satiate <laughs> me for a little while longer until it wasn't. Oh, right. Telling her best friend, who I'm so grateful has been a friend to me in all of this. She started screaming one night, Ingrid's a liar, Ingrid's a liar. She made it all up. And it was like, after I'd done all this work for years and years to reclaim what happened mm. to me and what it did to me and this desperate need to heal now, not just for me, but for my own son. I, uh, it's so funny for years. I was like focusing on her denial. I was like, it's I'm trying to get her to come out of her denial. I was the one who was in denial about my mom's capacity and that she was going to come out of this spell any day. Now I had to come out of that denial. And when I did, I mean, it was just so brutal. I just remember nights like sneaking out of bed because I can't even tell my husband because I'm so ashamed that my own mom doesn't love me. And she thinks like no one in my life, I'm pretty certain. <laughs> Someone tell me if I'm wrong. I, I think no one who actually knows me on any level would call me a selfish liar. Mm-hmm, right. Like, in a way, there's something so far from my character. It's like, what are you talking? But that's how my mother sees me. And and yeah, intellectually, I can say that. But what that felt like in my body had me sobbing in my bathroom going, I'm not going to kill myself. But if I didn't wake up tomorrow, that would probably be okay. Like, that's mm. how bad right. it felt. And yet, yeah. I would do it again. I would feel it all again, because to your point, that was the key. Like, grieve that mm -hmm. loss and take yourself back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My denial was broken. One thing I find interesting, Ingrid, is that she says, I can't think about that to you, but then to somebody else, she needs to call you a liar. Right. And I think, I just want to kind of sit with that for a minute, because I relate to it so much in a way that my mother, if I brought up something hard with her, she has actually kind of half been with me in that moment. Mm. And 
it was kind of okay. It was specifically, I actually made an amends to my mother in my 12-step work, Yeah, which was also a hard thing to do, but I was apologizing for how I acted out in my addiction. Right. But it was not concerning anything that she kind of did. In fact, <laughs> she, you know, the, these parents, I think, you know, we, we kind of know now that we're set up for the addiction through the pain of childhood trauma. So yeah. it's a complicated thing. So I'm making an amends to my mom. Yeah. And she kind of receives it in the moment. And it's one of these points where I'm in contact with her. And it's kind of okay. You know what I mean? I didn't really have big expectations, but like, I thought she handled it pretty well. I thought. Yeah. 12 hours later, she's a drunk puddle of mess to another family member saying that I destroyed her by bringing those things up. Yeah. So it just kind of makes me think about like what they may say to you and just sort of like, where else does it go? It's just in a way, it's so unsafe. Is it the addiction? Is it the denial? Is it dissociation? Yes, it's all of those things. And it's this split that we're talking about, right? Like this, right. this split about like, Right. I, I don't know. I, I maybe tend to think that, well, I'll say my mom. I think in some of those moments, I think she does want connection. I think she does want to see mm-hmm. me. I just, this is the emotional immaturity that she just cannot sustain it. And where does it have to go? Well, I have to be the scapegoat. It's like she's holding yeah. it, holding it. I can't hold it anymore. I got to just get rid of it and, and drop this bomb over there. And that thing about throwing your own kid under the bus over and over and over again in order to save yourself. It's like, yeah, I was, I, when I saw it, when I really finally saw it, I was just like, I will not be thrown under the bus one more time. Because even mm-hmm. if I knew that it was wrong, it still affected me. Mm-hmm. And I think going back to that idea of like all the therapy that I had or whatever recovery I had, it made me think that I shouldn't still be affected. And it's like, no, if you're yeah. if you're dealing with unhealed people who are all over you like that, you're going to feel that you don't just get to it, again, that sort of toxically mm-hmm. positive, like well, I'm just not going to hold on to that negativity. You know, I I believed a part of me thought that I could do that. And it's like, no, I'm literally being treated badly and it feels bad. (laughs) Or there's this thing about sort of, even someone can say, we just really need to accept that your mom is sick. Yeah. But in within that, that's like a cerebral acceptance without really the process. Having a process around... Like you're mentioning, sort of like being in the fetal position, yeah, learning that she just threw you under the, the bus. Process because they need us to be there for them. I mean, I think that was a big piece of my whole story mm-hmm. is I was never entitled to a process because I was the one who could see on some level what was going on. Like, so right. by definition, I was further along or I was healthier. So I needed to yeah. like, be patient or try to raise them up. And yeah, everyone is entitled to a process. Everyone is entitled to their feelings. And mm. you cannot heal by arriving at some level of like acceptance or forgiveness first. I know you talk about this all the time, but I feel like it can't be yeah. talked about enough. It's like so many of us running to be like, oh, well, right. yeah, they're a sick person. So I just have to 
And even the yeah. tone of my voice changes. Like, I'm not really a person at all. Like, I, mm-hmm. I don't get to exist because you matter more. Yeah. Like, you know, like, I've, I've been lucky to have access early to, to really good CPTSD, childhood trauma care, you yeah. know? Yeah. And I think just people have just kind of like, just they don't know what they don't know. Yeah. But someone may say, I went to the retreats. I did a whole bunch of Al-Anon work. Yeah. I have solved the conundrum of my mother. And I'm like, fantastic. That's great. But how's your old old therapy question? How's your love life? Yeah. How's your relationship with yourself? Yeah. How is, you know what I mean? So yes. I, I think speaking well, to that, like, that's right. because it just, it's not going to show up in, in a way of like, you're thinking about the relationship with your mom right. is it shows up, the trauma just shows up in everywhere else. Yes. But can I ask Indrid, like that moment where she threw you under the bus and like, that's such a, was that the moment that shifted you out of something? Yes, because in the actual moment, <laughs> I got it over like a direct message on Facebook from my mom's friend. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I said to my husband, Yancy, like, can you come here, please? And I, I read it to him, I think, and I just... Mm-hmm. This is what this makes me so sad. I, I think I've spoken about this in the writing, but maybe not as significantly as I should. I let him really hold me in a way that sometimes I'm a little like, I got it. Oh, it's all good. Yeah. Oh, right? right? Like I'm still holding, holding, holding. Mm-hmm. I'm holding because I had to hold forever. And in that moment, I really let him hold me Hmm. because I knew that he was safe and I knew that he loved me. In fact, there was a time, maybe not long before that he said like the wisest thing when I turned to him and I said, can you believe, can you believe that this thing happened in my family? And he said, Ingrid, the only shocking thing about what happens in your family is that you still find it so shocking. Yeah. And I was like, you're right, you know? So in that moment, I let him hug me and I was sad. But then again, my very young child at the time is there in the room and I have to just like, you know, kind of, okay, moving along. It was either that night or the night after, in the middle of the night, I was sort of woken up and the feelings really started to come for me. And half Mm. of me was going, please, please don't don't feel these feelings. They're too big. I can't do it, you know? And then don't wake him because I feel so devastated. I don't want anyone to see me in the, like, it's, it's almost like the most primitive, ugly state you can ever imagine Mm -hmm. being in. Mm -hmm. That's what was coming for me. It was like heat. It was just moving in on my body. And that's when I had to just creepily kind of like sneak out of the bedroom and go into the bathroom and then I just mm-hmm. lost it, right? That was the that was the real moment. It was when mm-hmm. I was sobbing in my bathroom, sort of like, I can't believe it, and yet I finally can. I can finally yeah. believe that this has been my reality my whole life. You're still having an appropriate reaction to betrayal. Yes, yes. It's, it's, it's just going to probably sound wildly inappropriate. And I don't mean to like dismiss your feelings, but it's almost like finding out like the emperor in Star Wars is actually an evil Sith Lord. You know yes. what I mean? Like there's just like, yes. where are we? You know but what I mean? And just having. Thing, that's the thing about like, if I was never entitled to a process before because they needed it more than 
I did, right? Like, because yes. they're sick or whatever, or they're alcoholics or they're fill in the blank. It is like that. It is like, you know, I don't know, probably lots of other examples I can't think of right now, but right. it's it's both monumental and sort of like my husband being like, not that shocking at all. Like, like right. this is the reality that you've lived in your whole life. One of the later stages in healing is when we give up on the potential of a relationship with that partner or parent or whatever. Yeah. And we just, we kind of hit bottom for it. And I'm, it sucks that we have to go through a bottom. You yeah. know what I mean? And I'm, I'm not trying to be like, look on the bright side, but those, I think for the listener is that, you know, there's many people out there that are still fighting the good fight with a parent. When you hit bottom, it's going to be pretty horrific. It's going to be really bad. You're going to have your heart broken. Yes. Yes. But it's really the place where it's really like this crazy opportunity within a crisis. Yes, because the you other know? thing that I, I, I say it was almost instantaneous, what happened for me in this heartbreak moment, I felt it immediately. I had more capacity to be a mom to my son. Yep. Right. Immediately. I could Immediate. feel. Sure. The difference. It was undeniable. Yeah. My body just kept giving me so much feedback that I was moving in the right direction. And I think that's the other thing. This was an organic thing that happened. It had to happen. It was experiential. It wasn't some idea of like, well, Ingrid, what you really should do is you should acknowledge that your mom was never there. Oh, yeah. You know what? She really wasn't ever there. It was like the process when you're mm -hmm. actually embodying what that looks and feels like. Yeah, right. The ripple effects were, like I said, just magnified almost every single day. I, I say mm -hmm. this too, I think somewhere in the writing, it was like almost touching my own skin. Like, Patrick, I'm a real live boy. Like I was Pinocchio <laughs> becoming embodied yeah. for the first time ever. Like yeah. that is what it felt like. Right. I want to talk about that because it's like, my experience of those moments are like you're feeling in color for the first time. Yes, a hundred percent. Seeing and, in color. I remember yeah. being on street corners and seeing signs for gas stations that I've driven by a million times. And suddenly it was yeah. like, that is the brightest red and blue I've ever seen. And look at all the people, mm -hmm. like other people are in their bodies and they're like in their cars. It just dropped me into my body and into the world. In a yeah. way, I've never been. My experience was when that happened and I started getting real about my untouchable mother is I could be around people for the first time and be comfortable in my own skin. Ugh. And it, it doesn't still make sense to me. It's just, I just think that when we experience a level of truth and we have a shift in our trauma, yeah. those shifts just kind of happen. What you went through with your mom is a lot it could have simply just become another re-traumatizing moment with her. Yeah. It could have been just another re-traumatization. Yeah, yeah. Where you maybe you dusted yourself off and yeah. then went on a website, looked up some boundary stuff, and right. then at Thanksgiving, you're you're right back at it with her, trying to get her to like That's wake up a little bit yeah. about having a connection with your son or whatever. That's usually how those things go, you yeah. know? yeah. And you had what my mentor, we do like experiential therapy where the idea is, well, there's all types of experiential therapy, but in our world, it's like you experience the trauma, you bring it up and you have a different outcome with it. Yeah. Meaning that maybe 
you get to hold on to some truth, or maybe the perpetrator goes away in some level, or you, you're able to talk about, you're able to separate the shame you carry about your family and just put that on your family. Yeah. And walk away a bit cleansed. Like those are the things. It makes me think about that, what you experienced, like then that wake up call. Yeah. And like when you say you were able to be around people, like the other, I don't know, interesting, I guess, to me, thing about my story is that in coming into more clarity and into my body, you know, I was also right at the point where like I was just finishing the book and I wanted to share it. So I'm going to go online. Mm -hmm. And here I start these professional social media accounts. And for the first time in my life, I'm saying, I will not be compartmentalized and fragmented. And it felt terrifying, but I was like, I'm not just going to go right. on as like, I'm an expert, right? Like, I'm yeah. Dr. Clayton, like, you know, whatever. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 no. I do have a lot of information. Uh, that's true. I do have some expertise. That's true. But what's also true is I'm crawling out of this thing as a survivor in real time. And right. I'm a like performer in my previous life, right? There's this part of me who likes satire and wants to make things fun and accessible. And all these things came into the room at the same time. And what I really... First, I couldn't have not done it, but to the point where I thought, well, I'm going to be me at any cost because that's what I need to continue healing. And I mm -hmm. really thought I'm going to tank my career at the same time. Like all credibility was just going to be gone. It felt like that's yeah. how big the risk felt to like be me, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, of wow. course, if I'm actually me, Patrick, I'm going to like, you know, alienate yeah. everybody and they're just going to see you know, how horrible I am. So it was shocking a little bit to be like, oh, no, you're actually, oh, you're laughing with me because this is funny or you're identifying. And it just continued to right. amplify this experience of being in the world, being who I actually am in the world in a way that, mm -hmm. you know, my family never could see me. And suddenly I'm, I'm being seen. I'm being seen. And that in and of itself was powerful. This book really was, you know, I'm not going to lie, it's hard to read because it was so both well-written and I felt like you were speaking for yeah. many, many survivors. You know, when you think about someone who's just going to pick up your book is what do you want them to walk away with in sharing that experience, in sharing your process and Incidentally, like we, you and I are in the business of, about talking about hard stuff. It's got to have been hard to be processing the stuff and writing it at the same time. Like that's a very raw kind of experience. All by myself with no therapist because right. I had not found a proper therapist hadn't for worked. so long that I was like, why would I go back and do that again? Thank God I have an incredible therapist now. But yeah, I was doing it all by myself. Wow. It was deeply right. painful. I do not endorse this for necessarily anybody else the way that it unfolded for me. But to, to that earlier question, I mean, it's the thing that always comes when I'm asked that. If people take anything away, I want them to know that they are not broken. They are not I really, truly Patrick felt broken because I could not solve this riddle after trying so hard for so long that I thought it must be me. And mm. I don't feel that way anymore. Like no one 
yeah. could look at me and say, you're a selfish liar. Like, I'd be like, you're out of your mind. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I know who I am and right. who I am. I love who I am. So right. beautiful. anything along that spectrum from just knowing, like being in touch with their humanity in a compassionate way, it's just like, you make yeah. sense. You make sense. We make sense. Right. I think what somebody would get out of your book is not only the resonance, but I think, I wonder if they would have their own shift in reclaiming some of their own loss perception. I mean, that's honestly the feedback that I get. And mm. I'm so grateful for that, that it wasn't until the final, final hour that I changed the title to believe in me. And at the point I even thought like, Oh, it's too declarative. I can't, I can't say that. It's like too something. And yeah. like so many other things about the writing, I feel like it was further along in its healing than I was in mine. Like it just kept pulling me further, oh, pulling right. me, right? Right. And so all the way up till the very end with the title. And now I'm so glad, I'm so glad that that's what I chose because that's the piece that people write to me about. And they say, Ingrid, I believe you and now I can believe what really happened to me right. too and get out of the debate. I really think that there are horrific things that happen to children that they go through in this childhood trauma world, you know, or humans not really that being great at being families or whatever. Yeah. But I really think in my heart that as we grow into adults, the biggest setback is the abuse that we went through around perception. Yeah. Like, in other words, for my mom to be lying about that she got drunk in the living room and then vomited all over the place and was a dramatic mess and did all that. And then if I'm mad at her the next day for doing all that, and then she says it doesn't happen, I actually think the witnessing of it, as horrific as it is, is less abusive than telling yeah. somebody it didn't happen. I agree. Or... That, just because, you know, it's just like there's been countless times in your childhood, my childhood, where you literally just had to hold on to the desk and sort of say, where are we now? Yeah. Like, what is actually happening? Yesterday, you were ready to leave him. Yeah. And you were grateful that I brought it up or whatever, and yeah. I felt safe, and I packed my bags and yeah. whatever. And now today, you got to run out to make sure he gets Sanka, because he really loves yeah. Sanka or some yeah. shit. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, silly no we're not going anywhere right yeah yeah right. i think about seeing my mom with a black eye and being horrified and like my whole Same. body is yeah. responding and going this is wrong yeah but asking her about it and she goes oh i you know he threw the remote control and you know i i didn't catch it and i'm like oh so it just literally just socked you in the eye like you didn't move yeah. So my body knows, no, this yeah. is wrong and I'm unsafe, but now I'm even more unsafe because you're lying to right. me about it. We should do this every week. I've loved this conversation. Oh, this was amazing. Uh, Thank you so much. I love connecting with you. I, um, you. I will have all your information, your Instagram, your website, okay. links to the book. For anyone who's listening, it'll be in the podcast details, the video details. The book is called Believing Me, Healing from Narcissistic Abuse and Complex Trauma. Yeah. And thank you so much for doing this with me. Thank you for reading my story, Patrick, and receiving it and for all the work that you do. But I personally feel very touched by the work that you do. And I'm so grateful. Thank you. And thanks for being a pal. I know. <laughs> I love that I got to meet you through doing this work. It's a big gift. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Thank you.